You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Good morning, everybody. So we're here for a worship conference, which means that obviously we're worshiping together, worshiping mainly in song, but it's not the only way we're worshiping the Lord, but we're worshiping together a lot, which is completely appropriate. We're having workshops really geared towards giving practical tools to help those of you who are involved in whatever facet you are of worship ministry to, to just do it in a way that is better helps the people more, honors God more. But then we also have these times together in the Word where we want to come back to God's Word and and learn how He speaks to us about these fundamental principles. And as Josh described in that first session, you know, we're kind of just taking a look at a theology or things to learn, lessons from worship uh, throughout the whole span of God's Word. Now, what I'm here to talk about is lessons from worship from the kings and kingdoms of Israel. And if you think about it it's, it, it's a long period of time. Now, I, I know technically the, the thing I'm assigned is the kings and kingdoms of Israel, but it was pretty much the same for about 400 years before there was a king of Israel. When Israel came into land, there was a tabernacle. And the tabernacle was the center of worship. And, and the priests and the Levites did their main work. And I, I want to emphasize main work, not their only work at the tabernacle, but then the people of Israel worshiped God. Well, they worshiped God at the feast times, of course. They worshiped God when they would bring their individual sacrifices because households in Israel would bring individual sacrifices either for a specific atonement for a personal sin or oftentimes as a fellowship offering or a peace offering. And they'd come and sacrifice, and and the priest would return a portion of that sacrifice to the family, and they'd have a great big barbecue there at the temple. It would be a very festive meal together. It was all a a form of worship. But then we also have the many commands in the Scriptures that, that flow all throughout this period that God commanded the Israelites to speak to their children about the Word of God, the covenant of God, the promises of God. When they sat down and when they rose up, when they went in and when they came out, teach these things to your children. Be reminded of them always as if they were frontlets on your forehead and on your arms. Keep the Word before you all the time. And that's why I wanted to stress that the work of the Levites was mainly at the tabernacle, but by no means, not only. Because if you remember, the the, the Levites were scattered throughout the land of Israel, not just wherever the tabernacle and then later the temple would be, but they were scattered throughout the land of Israel to be those who would help the children of Israel all across the land to remember the Lord, to worship the Lord, to, as is often forgotten, a specific duty of the Levites was to teach the word of God to the people on a regular basis. So in all these ways, a common Israelite would worship during this extended, these hundreds of years of the kingdom. And if you think about it, it began at the tabernacle. That's the same tabernacle that the children of Israel built in the wilderness. 
And then they would have the, the, the moving of the tabernacle into the promised land. You've had the 400 years of the judges. You had the last judge and the first prophet, that is Samuel. Then you had the first king. And, and Saul did something interesting in the worship of Israel. He corrupted the worship of Israel by usurping the priest's office. Remember when Saul decided that he would offer sacrifice? No, that was strictly forbidden. God didn't want kings to be priests and priests to be kings. That was to be reserved for the Messiah to fulfill those offices. We also see as a landmark in that period when the ark came to Jerusalem under David's time. I'll talk about that in just a moment. David also did significant things in the worship of Israel when he organized the Levites and the priests in their service, scheduled them, appointed them. He brought a new level of organization to it, preparing for the really next big step, the temple that Solomon would build. And if you've read those passages in 1 Kings about the building of the temple and the glory of the Lord coming down upon the temple, it's striking. These were huge events in the worship life of Israel. Then we have something, again, that we're going to take a look at more in just a moment. Jeroboam's false worship in Israel. That was a a, a very low mark. And then you have a long decline in Judah, as well as the general apostasy in the northern kingdom of Israel. And eventually, at the end of this period of the kings and kingdoms, you have the destruction of the temple. If you think about it, this broad period begins with a tabernacle and it ends with a burned out temple. It's very striking. Now, what I want to talk to you here is just to highlight three vignettes that I think teach us something about worship. The first one is when David brought the tabernacle into Jerusalem, brought the tabernacle and specifically the Ark of the Covenant. It's a little interesting and confusing all at the same time because we know that the Ark of the Covenant was supposed to be at the tabernacle, but it seems that there was some years after the tabernacle, excuse me, after the Ark of the Covenant was sent to the Philistines and the Philistines sent it back, that there was some period of time, maybe as much as 20 years, where the Ark of the Covenant was not at the tabernacle. But David brought them both together and We're going to take a look in a moment as when David brought the tabernacle and excuse me, I keep saying the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. Then secondly, we want to take a look at the power of David's example, sort of being worshiper in chief. And then I want to take a look at the danger of worshiping God in the false way. So the first one, open your Bibles, please, to 2 Samuel chapter 6. We're going to take a look at just the first Seven verses of Second Samuel chapter 6. We, we read there, Again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name, the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. So David's king now over a united Israel, all 12 tribes. The kingdom is healthy. It's thriving. David has captured Jerusalem and decided to make it the capital of his kingdom. And David knows if this is going to be the center of Israel's life, we need to have the tabernacle and especially the Ark of the Covenant there. So he's going to bring it there. 
Then we read now in verse 3. So they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments of fir wood, on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on sistrums, and on cymbals. You can picture that in your mind, can't you? This is a joyful parade. David wanted to do this up as a big production. We're bringing the Ark of the Covenant, which has really kind of been set aside for some 20 years in the house of Abinadab. People have been afraid to approach it because of the calamity that was associated with the Ark of the Covenant. David says, no, we're going to bring it in to the city now, to Jerusalem. This new city, this new capital for the people of Israel, this is a scene of celebration It's music. It's like a marching band. It's a beautiful procession. They're all coming together. They're bringing it. And best of all, did you notice that in verse 3? Preachers love to point this out, and I can't resist it. They set the ark of God on a new cart. Now, not just a cart, but a new one. It's going to be new. It's going to be fine. It's going to be good. This is going to be the best transport possible for the ark of the covenant. Except for one thing. It was directly disobedient to the command of God. You know this, right? I'm, I'm recalling this to your mind. How God had specifically commanded in the book of Exodus. Number one, that no one should touch the Ark of the Covenant. It should only be touched by poles that ran through the length of it, uh, attached to the Ark by some rings, and, and the only human contact was to be made with those poles. Secondly, it was only to be carried by humans. It was never to be loaded upon a pack animal and never to be carried upon a cart. God said, no, I don't want you to do those things. It has to be carried by people. I I do my work. I work my glory, my greatest glory through people, God said. And, and it was to be carried by specific people from specific families. The Levitical family of Kohath were the ones who had the charge to carry the ark. And look, this is David supervising all this. David's one of the good guys. David did so much right, but, but out of some oversight, out of some arrogance, out of some carelessness, David is doing this completely wrong. But you can imagine what they thought. David thought, the people around him thought, they said, look, we've got a new cart for the ark of God. God's going to be so pleased, but only the best is good enough for God. Get that old cart out of here. Get him a new cart and put the ark of the covenant upon it. You know what I find fascinating? Back in 1 Samuel chapter 6, the Philistines transported the Ark of the Covenant on a cart. And God didn't do anything against them. It's like God gave the Philistines a freebie on that. But not his people. Judgment begins at the house of God. And his people are supposed to know better. 
You, you can't compare by what God allows, so to speak. I'm not saying God approves, but God allows in the world and use it to judge how we should do things in the house of God. So here in verse 3, you've got Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab. They're driving the new cart. Again, preachers love to do this, and I can't resist. We like to look at the names of these two men. Uzzah, the name, supposedly means strength. Ahio means friendly. So here it is. Uh, Strength and friendly are bringing in the, the Ark of the Covenant on a new cart. And friends, let's face it, a lot of service for the Lord is just like this. We've got our new cart. We've got a big production. It's all being led with a lot of strength. And we're really friendly. It all looks right. Yet it's all done without inquiring of the Lord and from his word, how do you want us to do this? And it's going to end in disaster. But it didn't start out that way. Look at verse 5. Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord. Judging by the importance of the occasion, the number of the instruments that are mentioned, this is all a great production. Listen, if you or I were there at the time, we would be loving this. Excitement fills the air. Great music. Looks, you get caught up in the moment, all of it. It would make us feel good. Isn't this a good time to remind ourselves that we cannot, we must not, we dare not measure a worship experience, so to speak. I almost feel a little funny using those words together, but I think you know what I mean. We must not measure a worship experience by how it makes us feel. Everybody was feeling great at this moment. It was all happening. When we realize that worship is about pleasing God not pleasing ourselves, it changes everything. Friends, I think the conception that we have to keep in mind all the time, come back to it again and again, is just have the right things in order in our mind. Let let me tell you the wrong conception. Here's the wrong conception. The people up here on the platform, the, the worship leaders, these are the performers. The congregation is the audience. And the worship team, performers, whatever, they're depending on God for help so that they can please the audience. Now, look, worship leaders, I I sympathize with that. We've all prayed the prayer, oh, Lord, please don't let me embarrass myself. Please don't let me bomb. I, I don't know this very well. Just help me, Lord. We all know that. So there is a dependency on the Lord, but, but that fundamental model is, is completely wrong and dangerous, but all very common. Here's the right way to conceive of this. The congregation are the performers. God is the audience. And the people up here on the platform are here to help the congregation perform for their audience, which is God in heaven. You keep that conception in mind and make everything in the worship ministry around that. Listen, you will do well in worship ministry. 
Things got turned around on the way to Jerusalem. It's hard to receive in our very consumer-oriented culture, but worship isn't about pleasing us. It's about pleasing God. People who have been married know this. Uh, I think husbands deal with it more than wives. But there's that dynamic where the husband buys something for the wife, but it's really for him. Baby, I got you a new fishing boat, a new golf cart, a new power tool. You know, and, and, and you can have that thing where, I mean, really, you're doing it for yourself. You're not thinking, what will please her? Well, we need to think about what will please God. And this is what they were forgetting. Verse 6. And when they came to Nahon's threshing floor, Uzzah put his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it. For the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah. And God struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark of God. What what a devastating end to a day of great production. I mean, this is horrifying. You, You can hardly think of anything worse than this. And of course, through this, God rebuked David and Israel And through this, God teaches us. So let's take a lesson from this. Listen, technology, strength, personality, remember those names, Uzzah and Ahio, strength and friendly. Technology, success, personality, they're never enough for worship that truly pleases God. We can say, Lord, what pleases you? And our first place for learning that is from his word. And then we want to know, too, Lord, what are you speaking to our congregation? Lord, what wisdom have you given to our pastor about how he wants worship to be in our congregation? All right, that's the first vignette. For the second vignette, I'd like you to turn to First Chronicles chapter 15. Uh, we're going to take now the time when David successfully brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem because after this devastating day, Sometime later, David, after a period of mourning and setting things right in his heart, he he came back at it again. And I want to pick up the account in 1 Chronicles 15 because for some reason I I just like the way this account reads better for for taking a look at it together here this morning. 1 Chronicles chapter 15, beginning at verse 25. So David, again, this this is the second run at it after the disaster that we just read about. So David, the elders of Israel, and all the captains, over thousands, went to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with joy. And so it was when God helped the Levites who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Good, right? I don't read anything about an ark, or excuse me, about a cart so far. The Levites are carrying it that they offered seven bulls and seven rams. David was clothed with a robe of fine linen, as were all the Levites who bore the ark, the singers, and Chenaniah, the music master with the singers. David also wore a linen ephod. Thus all Israel brought up the ark of the covenant of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn, with trumpets and with cymbals, making music with stringed instruments and harps. After the disaster at the first attempt to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, 
the ark stayed at the house of a man named Obed-Edom. And God blessed the household of Obed-Edom abundantly. This was a signal to David that, that there wasn't something, I know this isn't the right word, but I hope you just give it to me. There wasn't something unlucky, unfortunate about the ark itself. No, God's blessing was there with his presence. You just got to listen to the Lord and do it the right way. And that's what David was determined to do. When the worship was filled with proper order, when David said, no, we're going to do it the way God tells us, I want you to notice it didn't become all somber and sad. Sometimes we get it in our head that, well, celebratory worship must be carnal and, and really subdued worship in a minor key. Oh, that must be really holy. Well, it it could go either way, right? But but when David said, no, we're going to do it the way, this was a celebration of joy. And so they loaded up the ark, but this time they put it, verse 26, upon the Levites who bore the ark. Let's carry it the way God told us. You can just imagine, let's go back to the scrolls. How did God tell us to do it? Oh, he wants the Levites to carry it. And I can assure you, these Levites were from the proper family that was appointed to carry the ark. Not only that, they offered seven bulls and seven rams. Uh, All along the way, they were sacrificing animals to honor God, to please him, to look for their need for atonement. And, And remember, every sacrifice connected to the worship of ancient Israel is a way of indicating us that they were looking to the need of atonement. It's a way that we would translate in our, they look to the cross again and again. And if you notice too, verse 27 says that David wore a linen ephod and he was there in the midst of the, of the, the, the singing, in the midst of the dancing. Now, I know we often think back to the account in 2 Samuel where Michael, the wife of David, said, well, you, you were, you know, the way we think of it in our mind, the way we read it is, you're out there dancing around in your underwear. And friends, that, that wasn't it at all. Chronicles tells us exactly what David was wearing. Verse 27, a linen ephod. In his wife's eyes, David's transgression was not that he was immodest. His transgression was that he wasn't kingly enough. He was wearing what all the Levites were wearing, a linen ephod. David was dressed just like all the other priests and Levites. No, no, David wasn't trying to become a priest. He wasn't going to mess around with the sacrifice. No, that was Saul's error, not David. But David says, listen, if the Levites and the priests are are, are singing and and dancing in this procession, I'm going to join right in with the marching band. But it was, no doubt about it. Verse 28. Thus all Israel brought up the ark of the covenant of the Lord with shouting. Friends, this was a big production. You could even say it was bigger than the first attempt. David was wise enough to know that the problem in the first attempt wasn't that the production was too big, but that it was disobedient to God. And look, we just have a way of seeing things, I really think, through the eyes of the flesh, the eyes of man. Oh, come on, it's, it's kind of inherent with us. You, you see 
one person with a guitar, and I know you musicians, you see the guitar, the first thing you're doing, you're sizing up the guitar. And what does that say about that person? Right? It's just, come on. It's just how it works. So you're sizing it up, and you're immediately making, we won't call them judgments, let's call them assessments about that person based on how they are and what they are. Then, the flip side of it, you come up and you come to a a church and you see up on the platform, man, there must be 35 people up there. Look at all the instruments. Look at all the singers. Look at the gear they have. And sometimes you can look at all that and you go, oh man, they got it together here. Or isn't it true? Sometimes you look at that and you go, oh man, how carnal. At our church, we're never that carnal. We're just, we're in for the purity of the worship. Just, just, you know, just somebody in their ukulele. That's all it is. Just them and the Lord. Okay, now look. You, you realize that the second time they brought the ark in, it was a big production, but it was obedient. You don't judge if it's pleasing to the Lord by either the smallness or the bigness, to use that word, of the production. You do it by the obedience to God, by if it's really bringing God's people into worship and where the hearts are of the people who are doing it. It's not the size of the production. It's the worship of the people that makes it honoring and pleasing to God. By the way, I love what it says there in verse 28. Thus, all Israel brought up the Ark of the Covenant with the Lord was shouting. Now, of course, we know this is, you know, a literary hyperbole. Not everybody in Israel was there, but it felt like it. And I wouldn't doubt that there were, in fact, representatives from every tribe, from Dan to Beersheba. There they were all together, all there. There were representatives, and there was a huge crowd. And it felt like we are doing this together. We're unified. Now, in the midst of that, there's going to be naysayers. Verse 29. And it happened as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came to the city of David that Michal, Saul's daughter looked through a window and saw King David whirling and playing music. And she despised him in her heart. David didn't hold back anything in his expression of worship. You know, in the American constitutional system, we talk about the president of the United States being the commander in chief of the armed forces. I look at this here and I think of David as being worshiper in chief for the kingdom of Israel. He's saying, people, take it off of my cue. I'm going to set the example. And by the way, I think that's relevant to everybody in leadership when it comes to worship. It's relevant to the people on the platform. It's relevant to leaders. I speak to myself as a pastor. Pastor, be careful at how you are in the worship service. People might just be looking at you. Wouldn't that be interesting? And and oftentimes, and look, I I, I know, I I am the pastor for whom, 
you know, that, that important text message comes in right when a worship song is, and I got to look at my phone. Okay, I'm sorry, I don't want to be legalistic about this, but listen, as much as possible for us, we really need to be able to say, I, I want to show the people of God that I'm a worshiper too. And that's what David was doing. So David went in with all of his heart and he did something I want to say with his whirling and playing music and the dancing. It was all appropriate to the occasion. Yet his wife, Michal, despised him in her heart. This is what she said in 2 Samuel chapter 6. She said this, How glorious was the king of Israel today uncovering himself. And again, what she objected to, it wasn't that he was being immodest. What she objected to was that you're just like everybody else, David, worshiping the Lord. And to that, David would have said, yes, I am. I'm a worshiper. The ground is level before the cross. God doesn't receive, you know, the worship of some priestly caste within the family of God. But we all come to him together. Matter of fact, when David replied to his wife, he essentially told her, I did it for God and not for you. And that needs to be the the ethic there. So what's the lesson from this? Friends, it isn't the size or the quality of the production that pleases God. And I mean that on both ends. But what really it is the obedience and the humility of his servants. And we should all seek to be models of that to the body of Christ. Now I want to take a look at one final sort of vignette. This is in 1 Kings chapter 12. 1 Kings chapter 12. And this is the danger of worshiping the true God in a false way. Verse 26, 1 Kings chapter 12. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom may return to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn back to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and go back to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Therefore the king asked advice, made two calves of gold, and said to the people, It's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set up one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. After the time of David, his son Solomon succeeded him in the kingdom. And Solomon, of course, built the temple. I find it fascinating about the whole building of the temple that David bought the land, funded it, purchased most of the materials, organized the service of the temple, drew up the blueprints. I mean, he basically made it like a Lego set that all Solomon had to do was come and put together. But we properly think of it, we always call it Solomon's temple, not David's temple, because God said, I I want it to be built by a man of peace, Solomon. Well, Solomon passed on his kingdom to his son, Rehoboam. Rehoboam was a fool. And because of his foolishness, so soon after the time of David, the 12 tribes of Israel were split into two kingdoms. 
The 10 northern tribes were called the tribe of Israel. Their capital city was called Samaria. The two southern tribes were called the kingdom of Judah, and their capital was Jerusalem. Well, this dynamic that I just read to you happened. Jeroboam, the king over the northern kingdom of Israel, said, you know, if my people obey God, because this is what God told them to do, and go to Jerusalem to offer their sacrifices at the altar that God commanded, because God said you should only offer sacrifices at the appointed altar that was first associated with the tabernacle and then later associated with the temple. If they obey God in all these things, they're going to leave the kingdom of Israel. They're going to go south to the kingdom of Judah. By the way, Jerusalem was not far from the border between the two tribes. So it's not like they had to travel a a long, long distance. No, just over the border, not very far. They could go to Jerusalem and go to the temple and obey God and offer worship that was pleasing to God. Jeroboam said, no, I can't have that. It'll win the hearts of the people away. And so what does he do? He says, this is such a, a classic line here in verse 28. It's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Doing it right, doing it the way that pleases God, man, that's too much work. Man, that's a challenge, isn't it? Because to do worship ministry well is hard work. Oh, look, I know there's probably maybe a few uniquely gifted and anointed people. I don't know who they are, but they're probably out there somewhere. It just all comes easy. You know, they just hear a song once, boom, they can play it. They could sing it. They can lead the organization, the techno. It all comes easy. Maybe there's a few people for whom it comes easy. But for most of us, if we want it to be done well in a way that honors God, we've got to put a lot of work into it. And there's always the temptation of looking for the easy way out. The thing that's just simply easier rather than what really pleases the Lord. It's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Now, I I, I would pray we wouldn't do what Jeroboam did. He presented two golden calves and he said, here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, once you notice what, what Jeroboam said he was doing, he said he was honoring Yahweh, the God that brought him up out of Egypt. But he was doing it in a completely false way. And it just reminds us that, you know, there, there's two ways that we can practice idolatry. We can practice idolatry by worshiping false gods. And that's all around us today. We don't bow down before Baal and Ashereth today and Molech and all that. But as a culture, as a society, you better believe we, we bow down in honor and sacrifice to everything those gods represent today. Okay, so the worship of false gods is alive and well out there. But, but usually in the church, that's not so much. It's, all, it's always something to keep an eye on and to be wary of. But, but for us, the bigger danger is to do something more along the lines that Jeroboam did. We worship the true God, but in a false way. In a way of our own imagination. 
Look at this, verse 30. Now this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. By the way, I just need to pause right there. If you go to Israel, probably on your itinerary, we're going to go visit Dan. And you'll see exactly where this altar and where this golden calf stood. It's really striking to think that the events right here that we're talking about here in verse 30 happened. So the thing became a sin for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. He made shrines on the high places and he made priests from every class of people who were not of the sons of Levi. Now notice this. The second part of it was very important to what Jeroboam was doing again. Not only did he have to have an unauthorized place of worship, an unauthorized object of worship, but he had to bring in unqualified people to do it as well. It was all part of the same cloth. Now, God said, no, I I need people of a certain qualification. Now, our qualifications for people to lead worship are not the same as existed in the days of ancient Israel. Theirs were mostly had to do with heredity. But ours have to do with character, maturity. And in the same way, Jeroboam could kind of say, listen, this guy's completely unqualified, but look at what he can do up there. It's possible for us to do it in worship ministry as well. He brought in unqualified people. Continuing on, it says, Jeroboam ordained a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah, and offered sacrifices on the altar. He did at Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he had made. And at Bethel, he installed the priests of the high places which he had made. So he made offerings on the altar which he had made at Bethel on the 15th day of the eighth month, in the month which he had devised in his own heart. And he ordained a feast for the children of Israel and offered sacrifices on the altar and burned incense. Look, you wouldn't blame an outside observer for looking at what happened at Jeroboam's center of worship in Bethel and what happened in Jerusalem at Solomon's temple. It's the same thing. Some priest gets up, sacrifices an animal, burns it on the altar. They burn incense. There's music. They do this. It's the same thing. But we would know it's not the same thing. For the most part, the world embraces the religion of Jeroboam. Now, they're not bowing down literally before golden calves and high places but the world embraces a religion according to taste. Notice that phrase in verse 33, in the month which he had devised in his own heart. You know, we just need to be very careful that we don't offer people ministry that is merely tailored according to our own taste. What pleases us? What pleases them? We need to think primarily what pleases the Lord. So what lesson do we get from this? Well, how about this? It's never enough to worship 
the true God. We must worship the true God the way he has commanded, as it would please him. It teaches us that we can't appoint anyone we please to the service of leading worship. It has to be standards. It has to be qualifications. And I'm not here to give you what those are, but you, your pastor, you need to work that out in conjunction with the leadership of your church. And we have to go beyond something that we just devise in our own heart and say, Lord, what is it that pleases you? Right, I want to close just with this reminder. Because in some ways, this is the most helpful thing for me in understanding worship. God is the audience. The congregation are the performers. And everybody on the platform is here to help the congregation worship the Lord. That's what pleases God in the assembly of his people. Father, thank you for this. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor David Guzik. If you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor David's teaching ministry by visiting EnduringWord.com.